SportsLit is co-founded and co-hosted by Neil Acharya and Nate Sager. Engineer and technical producer, Michael Ella. Executive producer, Neil Acharya. Welcome to SportsLit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today, we are speaking with Ted Nolan regarding his autobiography, Life in Two Worlds, A Coach's Journey from the Reservation to the NHL and Back written with Meg Masters, published by Viking Penguin Random House Canada. It was released on October 10th. Indeed, we're going to go dig in the corners with one-time NHL Coach of the Year, Ted Nolan, in the spirit of truth and reconciliation, Neil. If you had the slightest cultural awareness or social consciousness, you were aware that when Ted Nolan took the reins of an NHL team, here was something and someone different. For starters, he stood out behind the bench of the Buffalo Sabres when he took over in the 1995-96 season. He didn't look like anyone else. And in Ojibwe, Ted was born the third youngest of 12 children on the Garden River First Nation near Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario in 1958 the proud son of Stan and Rose Nolan. It didn't take long to figure out he wasn't going to do things the conventional way either. Now in 2023, we get a clearer picture as to why. And that's because for the first time, we really get to know the man. Social upheaval has led everyone, whether it's advertisers or in this case publishers, to seek out different voices across all areas to share their story. And there's a climate now in which Ted Nolan feels comfortable to share his story in great and often painful detail. And when you say painful, Neil, what popped to mind was early in the book when Ted recalls the pattern from, you know, get-togethers at the Nolans when he was he was a boy. You know, his mom, Rose, whom he later named a scholarship fund after, she was this, you know, welcoming soul. So you know, people, she drew people to her. People would come over to play cards and kind of imagine, you know, if, you know, relate to your own childhood, you know, you're, in, in bed, you're overhearing what, what the adults are talking about that you're not supposed to hear. And he writes that, you know, quote, you know, the early evening tales were often funny ones, but slowly the laughter faded and the conversation grew quieter. And that was from people who could only suppress, you know, bad memories and the hurt from the ongoing decimation of their community and their culture for so long. And that's when he got an idea of, what it, what had been done by the Canadian state and the churches that ran the residential schools. And that led to him to say, Hey, I'm not going to repeat that. I'm, you know, he, you know, develops cultural awareness and just and became to understood that just being authentically himself and a, you know, an Ojibwe person from Kitigan Zibi Garden River was just an act of defiance, especially when he went into that space, you know, the, the, the arena, the arena of you know these high of high level hockey. I'll just share a quick personal memory of how I first became aware of him. Uh, my granddad, whom I you know referenced in the Dave Hill episode a, a couple of weeks ago, he actually lived in Sault Ste. Marie the last you know two decades of his life, 
And he had, uh, in 93, when Sault Ste. Marie hosted and won the Memorial Cup, well, he had saved this poster, you know, with the team picture. And there's Ted in the front row, and I could sort of see, okay, you know, you know, what's the what's the story with with this fellow fellow who kind of you know obviously stands out in a hockey team picture from the nineties? Yeah, and and I, I just want to digress a little bit too. I think it's very very important to note that Ted, throughout this narrative, states he grew up in a in a loving household with a loving family, and then there were issues issues like alcohol that would linger uh, with you know some of his siblings, but uh, and and. And through that, and then as, as you talked about those weekend kind of parties at his house, uh, Ted's escape was playing hockey on an outdoor rink, which he made himself. Um, you know, it's it's still very important to note that, he, you know, he said he grew up with a lot of um, maybe not structure, but a lot of love and and support uh, in, in many ways through his parents and, and, and his siblings. So uh, let's not get into convenient narratives um, because, you know, that's we you know, we just don't want to do that. Um but there is racism Ted faced uh, outright, and that you know it's twofold outright, especially when he's younger, and maybe it hits it, it hits its height when he leaves Garden River to play junior A hockey in Kenora, Ontario. Um, but there's also this subtle racism, and we've heard that term over and over again. What is it? You know, it's it, it it's it's that doubt or that lingering feeling or questioning. Um, you know, if this situation uh, transpired with someone else in it, would it have happened another way? Why did that kind of happen to me? Um, you know, and that almost takes over. Um, and as we see with Ted, when one gets to the point where they can fight back and, you know, it's it's easy to to be overtly racist to a, to a kid, especially in that era. Uh, I think less so when they're able to fight back. And, and then as you as time evolves, it, it, it can become more subtle. And it, and it, it sort of does for Ted. Um, and, and, you know, over the course of his hockey career, we kind of find that he's often separate or separated. And he's put into scenarios that it'd be easy to say, hey, I don't know if he's getting a, an equal or a fair shake here. And it made me think of the book I have in my hand here, Call Me Indian by Fred Saskamoose, who's a generation prior to Ted Nolan. He's the, uh, the first uh, NHL's first uh, treaty Indigenous player, you know. And he writes about, uh, you know, a road trip he takes with his Chicago Blackhawks teammates and then, you know, they kind of, they're going all along the West Coast. He's invited with these guys to go out. Uh, I think it might have been at season's end. And then they're going to drive back towards the East Coast. And once they get to Bismarck, North Dakota, they they say, well, you know, you can just get home from here. We're going to we're gonna go go on to Winnipeg. You can, you can get to Moose Jaw on your own. Now, yeah, Moose Jaw might have been, you know, a little to the north, well, a lot to the north and maybe further back west. But, you know, you go, hmm. That just am I, you know, as as Fred Saskamu says, uh, had I misjudged their friendship or acceptance, and also, uh, you know, I'm sure if it was Fred and his friends, uh, and and someone else was the odd person out, they would never have let that happen, right? Everyone would get home. Uh, is is kind of like, hey, you know, you you think about those things, and you move move ahead, and and it's a loose comparison, but Ted Nolan in 2001. Uh, with the Islanders. Now, this isn't uh, when he coached the Islanders later on in 06, 07, and 07, 08. After his first stint with the Sabres, he gets an interview with the Islanders mid-season after they are trying to replace Butch Goring, and Mike Milbury's in charge. And he says, well, come to meet with me about this this you know, head coaching job. And my after his, he's like, my assistants are going to take you out for dinner. But, you know, he finds out it's not 
you know, it's not a not a restaurant. It's not even a bar with like a place with good burgers. It's mm-hmm. a full full on watering hole. And and he and he says, um, you know, he left. Right. You know, would that situation have happened if it was someone someone else, another candidate for the job? Why am I going to a bar? I've flown in. I'm hungry. Uh, why aren't we just sitting over dinner like you would with anyone else? Now, yeah, that, yeah, that gets in your head. That's a that's something that's universal and it's you know compounded when when you're you know yes indigenous or you, you just know, go a, through a minority. something like that yeah in yeah. your, in your in, in, so 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 that i found that really interesting but i mean listen let's 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 move forward here to to you know who ted is as a hockey player because that's as important as anything else and in 1978 ted's drafted by the detroit red wings uh and he also plays for Pittsburgh before retiring uh because of serious back injury he ruptured two discs uh found out after the fact to um, uh, getting leveled in a game. I believe it was in Vancouver. And then that was at the age of 28 in 1985-86. And he gets to the NHL using ragtag equipment. And that means uh, sev- skates several sizes too big. Um, sticks he-, he kept together in one piece with finishing nails and tape. So it's it's remarkable that he that he he gets anywhere <laughs> really playing playing that way. Yeah, it's a story of raw hunger. Uh, you, it could never happen today. Nowadays, you know, hockey players, you know, there's all this sports-specific training. It's funny. Uh, I, I'd always just think, you know, there's that video of, that was circulated of uh, Toronto Maple Leafs star winger Mitch Marner when he's about four years old skating cir- circles around everybody. And you're like, okay, he's already a future pro. At, you know, Ted, I think he said he didn't even really play on a formal team until he was about 12. And I know Reggie Leach, who was from Manitoba and once scored 61 goals in the season for the Philadelphia Flyers. It was, it was similar with him. It's just that's how much it changed. Now, as a player, uh, Nolan had the unique distinction. He was a teammate of 16-year-old Wayne Gretzky in the Sioux, 18-year-old Steve Eiserman in Detroit, and 20-year-old Mario Lemieux in Pittsburgh. So if he ever has to pick an all-star team of people he played with, there, there's half of the top six forward core right, right there. He also returned rights pretty warmly about his uh, experience in the American Hockey League that with the Adirondack Red Wings where he won the Calder Cup in 1982. Yeah, with uh with Mark Osborne. Yeah, hi Ozzy again. <laughs> so yeah, I, I it it's it, he that that's quite a murderer's row of of, of players he, he played with uh, as you say Ted or sorry as you say Nate and 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 Ted though uh, he says it's a relief when he when he when he stops playing and he, I think he, he embraces the control perhaps of coaching and that's his true calling and he takes the Sioux Greyhounds to three consecutive Memorial Cup uh, tournaments and then he wins it on, in in 1992 93. Um, he also had a part in um, in the Eric Lindros trade whirlwind, uh, which we talked about in our last episode with uh, Doug McLean and with Scott Morrison. Yeah, briefly, uh, it was quite something. The OHL literally changed the rules for if it what would happen if someone gets taken by a team of what they call their priority selection draft, because they don't really want to call it a draft. Uh, it refuses to go to their team. Lindros didn't want to play in the Sioux, so the league had to Okay, we'll we'll create a ten day window in January when when you can trade them, and they made a deal with Oshawa. Lindros got a Memorial Cup with Oshawa, and then the Sioux, you know, kind of ran the league for the next three years. As a OHL nerd, I have to point out, uh, thirty years since that Greyhounds run in the early nineties, 
There's only been two other teams to play in three consecutive Memorial Cup tournaments, but none of them, neither of them, played in their league final three seasons in a row, like the Hounds did, back-to-back -back winning the league and then a league runner-up and then winning the tournament as a host team in 93, Neil. Nate, uh, was uh, one of those teams you mentioned uh, Windsor? Uh, no, it was not. Not Windsor. Uh, Kelowna Rockets, uh, 03 to 05. Uh, the middle year, they were the host team, and I think they lost in the third round of the Western League playoffs. And then London Knights, 2012 to 14. And then the third year, they were actually eliminated in the second round. And then, as I relish pointing out, went 0 for 3 in the uh, went winless in the Memorial Cup at home, which it's happened a couple times since, but at that time, it was kind of novel, Neil. Well, you know, let let us uh, trivia nerds digress back or 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 return our compass to to the topic at hand. And, and very good, Nate, by the way. Um, it, it, it's Ted Nolan's first stint with the Buffalo Sabers, for which he is known best, and it, it lasted just two seasons from 1995 to 1997. But that's the lasting impression of his NHL coaching tenure, which also extended to a second run with the Sabers uh, from 2013 to 15 during the tank years. They were going for uh, McDavid. It, it turned out to be Eichel, and it, it didn't work out uh, very well. But uh, he was at the helm for that. And he also coached the New York Islanders for two seasons from 06, 07 to and 07, 08. Um, and during his time in Buffalo, he stood out, uh, not only physically, um, there's that theme again, but uh, for his coaching style, uh, players coach. He got Buffalo going. Now, they missed the playoffs in 95, 96, the last year in the odd but they won their division title uh, in 96-97. And I will point out that that's more of a statement of their play than an achievement in itself. I don't think anyone's really concerned about winning division titles, but they'd, they hadn't won one, I think, since 1981, meaning they hadn't really gotten to the top. They hadn't gotten to their height of their play, and they were getting there under Ted Nolan. Uh, they played Ottawa in that playoff, uh, uh, that spring playoff of 1997. They beat them in a dramatic series. Uh, and then lost to the Flyers in the second round. Um, you know, along the way in that Ottawa series, uh, Dominic and Dominic Hasek, the Hall of Fame goaltender, and and uh, Ted Nolan kind of there was friction there. I don't think Ted Nolan said he was aware of it, but there was Hasek had uh, had some issues. Um, there was an injury that was questioned, and so on. Um, and then there was the relationship that's that's tied to that, which which is the relationship with John Muckler, the GM, which at best was not ideal. Um, in the end, both Muckler and Nolan were, were shown the door, uh, and, and Muckler had won the executive of the year. Executive of the year. Uh, Ted Nolan won coach of the year, the Jack Adams Award. And then uh, with Muckler gone and a new GM uh, in Darcy Regeer, Ted got what he felt was a lowball offer, a one-year contract, and he rejected it as was the plan, as it seems to be. Yeah, I, I, remember, I read that, I was like, I, there was a time and place where I would have called that a PFO, and the third word is off, not offer. <laughs> so I've been I've been thinking about it, and, 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 and you know, as any journalist, you want to make sure you 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 want to turn over every stone and kind of get to the root of of you know, there's this great coach, and he and he didn't have his his time in the sun per se, because uh, he, he's taken his teams far and he's gotten the most out of his team. So, you know, it seems to me, especially when you look to this this point with Buffalo this first stint you know is it his inability to waver from principle um is it his unwillingness to play into this power structure 
you know, to keep in mind where he's come from uh, and, and his willingness to kind of play ball in that world. It's a different world. It's a corporate world. And he's kind of a guy that sticks to his principles and he wants to reward exactly what he sees. You know, he's not, he's not really into playing any games per se. So that may have been his demise for better or for worse. Uh, now, normally, because uh, we record our intros uh, before our interviews, um, you know, we, we kind of have a, a different perspective, but sometimes for time constraints, uh, that's, there's a reversal. So that's the case today. We, we have talked to Ted, and now we're recording the intro. And so I'm going to cheat a little bit. And, and the book starts with a forward of, of Ted kicking his Jack Adams Award trophy down a flight of stairs in his home. This is, he's already rejected the contract offer, and uh, he's not working. And the, they, they send the, the replica trophy to his house. And, and later in the book, he removes this this case that he's kicked this trophy, this replica trophy down the stairs, and he and he and he picks it up and he puts it on the corner of his shelf, and the base is broken off, uh, the cup kind of is broken off the, off the base, um, and he sets it uh, sets it on a shelf. And I found it interesting because he said today that trophy still remains in two pieces. Now, if you're going to make a film, I might have made it a couple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it might be. The last shot or, or, or a shot right into the end where you, you switch, you fade to black and go into a next, the next section, the next portion of, of the story. It's symbolism. Um, uh, because it's kind of like the height of really of, of, of what he did in a lot of ways in the NHL. And it's just there in two pieces. And then, okay, uh, what do you, where do you go from there? I mean, this, this, this is a man who's done so much for for his community uh since then and and during that time and all along and um above all when you read this this is a man who's truly aware of his culture he loves his culture and he's unafraid to represent his culture uh and he's aware of this from an early age it's deeply rooted within him you know he talks about the aim movement which we'll get into and um we see this throughout the pages of this book and it's Actually, it's it's kind of exceptional. It's it really it's really what moves this book in so many ways. Yeah, and it was just coming to realize how, how you define, you know, success, and it's 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 who you influence in, in all the you know worlds that you move through. Uh, Ted's title, you know, "Life in Two Worlds," it really harkens to a, a theme of, of kind of inner conflict in other media. I've you know had the opportunity to consume where it looked at sort of indigenous identity and representation in sports and the arts. Uh, Nolan wrote about how he was just, you know, dialed in. He could not quit because he knew if he quit, it would mean that the doubters would just be able to stereotype it. And that made me think of a movie I saw as a lad, uh, Running Brave. It's a very 1980s (laughs) biopic of the Olympic champion distance runner, Billy Mills. Uh, the only person from the Americas to ever win the Olympic gold medal in the men's 10,000 meters. But the through line is Mills, he just keeps having to confront all these naysayers, including some of his own Oglala Lakota people, you know, and they're all, and they're just looking at, they're just making assumptions about him because of stereotypes and because of someone else who, you know, tried to go out and, you know, pursue pursue high performance sport and then came back, you know, and it, it and it's just that, He's like, hey, you got to know who I am, not who you know that, that other fellow was. And I mean, that's also there when you know. Think of Gary Smith; he used to write those incredible long-form pieces in Sports Illustrated, the really the definitive one, 1991. You know, Shadow of a Nation, 
about a crow basketball player, Jonathan takes enemy. It's just always that, you know, how do I, you know, not put myself above others and, but also use my, you know, talents and my skills, you know, do I stay, do I reach out? I mean, I've also seen that in some really good Canadian movies that have come out in the last few years, like the Grizzlies and the incredible 25th year of Mitzi Bearclaw. I mean, I can, cannot know, you know, firsthand what that's like necessarily, but I can sort of relate to it better through that and through this book Ted Nolan's put out and maybe the book, you know, we had Brian Trottier come on and discuss with us last year, you know, just that hunger to go out and, and compete and, and show, show, you know, where you came from, but also come be able to come back to it too, Neil. Yes. Thanks, Nate. And, and before we bring on Mr. Nolan, we want to let you know that while this interview is loaded, it's also fun. I mean, Nate, who is Darren Zach for a thousand? What is people will have to listen to the whole episode to find out. <laughs> well played. Uh, as always, just a reminder, you can buy this book and any others we cover uh, on our website. Click the Amazon link and feel free to join any of our social media platforms or comment, um, share things, whatever you want. Um, feel free to engage with us. Uh, but for now, Nate, it's time to get this show started. All right, we're back on Sports Lit, Neil Acharya, Nate Sager, and very pleased to be joined by Mr. Ted Nolan uh, to talk about his book, which we talked about at length earlier, Life in Two Worlds. So uh, first of all, uh, Ted, welcome to the program. Well, thanks a lot, Neil and uh, Nate, for, for having me on. Well, we're going to get right into the questions, and, uh, and we're not going to start off lightly. I mean, there's nothing light about this book, so I don't feel bad about that. But um, I, I wanted to know... Um, how you think the death of George Floyd opened the eyes of publishers to seek out a story like yours? Well, you know what? It's uh, it's funny because I, I never really set out to 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 write a book, but uh, my, I did a interview a couple of years ago about truth and reconciliation and the emotions of the residential schools and the day schools and everything just kind of came to the forefront. And at the same time, uh, George Floyd uh, incident was happening in in the states, and and I remember the uh, the police officer saying, "If if you're complicit to if you're complicit, you're you're." A part of the problem and so when when i was asked to, to write a book I, I hesitated for a little while but then i i said the only only way things are gonna get better if you if you speak uh, speak your your truth and and hopefully it'll help make a difference do you think i mean we, we interviewed brian <laughs> trottier recently the fred saskamoose book came out in in recent times too i mean it's not just george floyd but do you think just some of the things that have happened and the awareness uh out there has created an interest in kind of mainstream media and publishers to to find stories other than the mainstream, like yourself. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one one thing I love about sports. I mean, it's a uh, or you should love about sports. It's so diverse and different personalities, different uh, uh, different walks of life. People make it from different uh, different areas, and uh, and and it and it's good to to see now that people are. Are, are reading about uh, different stories. Not everybody grows up in a in a in a nice neighborhood. Nobody, everybody doesn't grow up in a in a luxurious home and and things like that. So it's good to know where people come from. So, in the bottom of the whole thing, uh, people have a better understanding of of, uh, of the people they're they're watching or the people they they assume that they know about. They certainly will with your story. It's 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 very detailed. Uh, 
in, in, in terms of, you know, the culture you grew up in and Garden River First Nation. And before we get into all of that, I guess, uh, and I hand it over to Nate to ask a couple of questions. I wanted to ask you about Meg Masters, who you wrote this book with. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Meg and, and, and her contribution to this book? Uh, her contribution is, is huge. Uh, um, uh, I, I couldn't put a couple sentences together without uh, grammatical errors all over the place. So, <laughs> and, you know, and the, the, I have to give her a lot of credit because she was very, very understanding. She, she never once judged. She never once uh, uh, said, oh, my goodness. She just, um, we, we, did, we got along right from the get-go uh, really fine. And uh, when when I was asked to, to write a book, uh, one of the, the main things I really wanted was a, a female author to, to work with me because mm-hmm. I, I feel that with my story, at least, we have a, it's a little bit more empathy towards, uh, you know, sometimes uh, guys are a little bit tough and just get over it type of things. But, uh, you know, those those things, are, those days of, of saying just get over it are, are long gone and, and, and they shouldn't even been said to begin with. Yeah, I, I actually watched Ted uh, the interview you had with Rod Pedersen a while ago. You t- spoke about that, like having that desire to uh, bury the past. But how important do you think it is for you know men, you know my my and Neil's age, men of your age, to 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 be open and, and talk about things that you know affected you and you know that led you to maybe put walls up for for many many years. Uh, yeah, you know I didn't really. Uh... Excuse me. I, I didn't really realize how many walls I, I did put up. Uh, you know, from the, from the early stages of you know disappointment and uh, things that happened in your early life, you just kind of put up a, a wall and you get over it. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, the biggest blow that happened to me at a young age was when I when I lost my father, and I went to Kenora, Ontario, to play hockey that that following winter, and the and the name calling and all the stuff came. I I just put up a wall and just let it pretend it didn't bother me, but down deep it did. And I kept doing it over and over again. And it, and it worked a, a long time. Uh, but then all of a sudden, like everything else, if you don't deal with it, eventually it's going to come to the forefront. And, and when I got let go by the Buffalo Sabres, uh, that's when it kind of, all the walls come crumbling down. And uh, I went into some very dark places for a while, but mental health is, is a very serious thing. And, and I didn't realize that, uh, until you, you go through it, but uh, going through it, 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 there's a lot of people like myself out there that uh, that are, are uh, that have walls up, and, and the better you uh, the better you could get to them and address them, the, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, how possible how possible would it have been to actually tell your story the way you've told it now if you hadn't done that? Uh, you know, I, I don't think I, I would have, and I, and I think certain uh, timing is everything. And uh, I, I don't think the world was uh, maybe maybe ready for that truth. You know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, what what may have you? But now, because there, there's so much uh, so much emphasis now on on mental health and, and what our what our uh, kids are going through, and you know, with the suicides and and the, and the substance abuses and and neglect and all those type of things. So I, I think uh, uh, once people have uh, feel a comfort in order to to speak. Uh, you know, I, I I didn't feel comfortable speaking about it myself, and then all of a sudden, just wake up one day and said, maybe maybe now is the time to to uh, to talk your truth. Before I get into my next question, I want to actually ask you about that. And how did you you know get as far as you did? You obviously had, I mean, you, there it's throughout the book. You 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 know, obviously you talk about a great upbringing, but you know, all kinds of different uh, you know 
horrible things happen, whether it's kids skating over your fingers and you being left with your brother to take care of that. And then some of the other things uh, with, with women and, 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 and so on, how, like, how were you able to, you know, get to the point where you're Ted Nolan, the winner of the Jack Adams and Memorial cup, uh, you know, co- winning coach, how were you able to do that where others might've probably failed and succumbed to some of the things you, you talk about like your brothers. So for, uh, you know, per se, uh, you, you know, what? I uh, I always just kind of reflect back to to what I know. And when when I was a kid and, you know, some of those uh, tough, tough nights in, in our house and there's a lot of drinking and there's sometimes there, there's fighting going on. And, and the one one thing I've always uh, always did was went outside to my uh, backyard rink and I, and I, and I skated and, I, and I, I escaped the. <laughs> The issue just where I went for a run I, I always escaped somehow and uh, my escape me- mechanism at the time was was hockey it was a, a place that I felt uh, comfortable doing and and uh, that was my my place and, and I think that's uh, I think I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think that the biggest thing that happened to me with, uh, in Buffalo was I didn't have that safe space anymore uh, I didn't have it to to, to, to forget about my issues and forget about my problems and, and to focus on something else and, and it wasn't there so that's when the, the walls kept coming down but to answer your question I, I just uh, I just really felt hockey was my my escape mechanism to, to get away from some of those issues and it's interesting how, how it became you know your escape mechanism became the vehicle for you to to kind of have success um, now um, how much of this book, is new information that you had never disclosed to anyone, as in you were the only person that knew about it until it went to print? Uh, I, I don't think uh, my, my family knew about it. And, uh, uh, you know, the, when I went to Kenora, uh, for example, you know, I, I just lost my father. And, and it was really, it was a, our family was so close and nobody really left too much. And uh, when I went away to Kenora, everybody thought I was going away to the to a special place and have a lot of fun and make a lot of friends and, and play something that I, I loved to play. But it wasn't quite like that. So, but when I came home at Christmas time, uh, for the for the Christmas break, I just put on a, a smile and I put on a, a great front that I was uh, I I was having such a great time I I couldn't wait to get back but it was just a facade and then when I uh, when I got drafted by Detroit Red Wings I was so elated to to get drafted then all of a sudden reality came in you have to leave home again and when I left uh, um, it was almost like holding my breath all season long I couldn't wait to to come back home after the experience I had in Kenora. And that, that followed me through, throughout my whole career. So, uh, you know, people might have assumed that I, I, I was really enjoying myself and liking, but I had to work so hard to, to keep up, to tell you the truth, uh, because the, the guys were so, so good. But uh, uh, to work so hard to keep up in the facade of, of letting people know back home that I was really enjoying it, which I, which I, I really wasn't, because I, I think I stopped loving the game when I was about uh, – uh, 16 years of old, 17 years old, and, and it became from loving the game to, to just trying to survive in the game. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Those those are some of the most gripping parts of the of the book, or the early the early parts of the book before you even get to you know the, to Sault Saint Marie. Um, I was very interested. I know Nate was too about uh, just learning about uh, how you came to understand AIM, uh, the American Indigenous Movement. And um, what I also found interesting was uh, the association with uh, kind of the, the, the civil rights movement in regards to uh, black people and how, 
how you saw similarities with Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and what you learned from AIM. So could you, for those uh, that haven't read the book and, and listeners um, that are, are, are just learning this for the first time, kind of explain how you, you went to that wedding and you, and you kind of got uh, uh, in touch with people from AIM and what that did for you. Yeah, you know, my my older brother was was part of the part of the movement when he went because we have a uh, there's no, there's not a border for us. There's not the United States and Canada. Uh, uh, it's North America for us, and uh, the, we we don't call the border a border. We call it a medicine line. We go from so we share a lot of information from from one side to the other side, and and so the the American Indian movement was go was very very strong in the, in the United States, and and some of the members came to to Canada. To, to, to share some of the information that they had, and and a few of the members uh, even came to my house when I was a younger boy. So, so all the all the history stuff that the people were taking in school, uh, we were taking at home. And so we had some of the uh, you know Russell Means and Dennis Banks and all those uh, all those guys doing uh, speeches at, at events, and we got a chance to, to to listen to their 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 powerful messages about who we are and and what where we came from and what we have to fight for and. And then you then you have a sprinkle off. You see some of the some of the members. Like Alex Akawensi was one of the one of the first guys I, I met, and mm-hmm. he had this long, shiny black hair, and there was uh, in uh, in ponytails, and he was talking about the movement and and how strong he was as a as a Nishnabe, as, as a Nishnabe man. And uh, my brother was involved with it. He was at the wedding, and I just you know from there I just went on and and try to learn as much as I can. Then you then you start hearing you know similar stories about uh, what happened with the black people, how Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were leading their 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 people out of. Uh, uh, some of the issues that they're dealing with, and then all of a sudden you get to see the movies, you know, Malcolm X movie, and right. all those type of things. So I was just intrigued with uh, with the people who fought for who, who they are and and and, and their, their place in in society. Yeah, and, how, and when you went off to Kenora too, Ted, how did how did that you know the wisdom you gained there? How did that tie to seeing sticking it out in Kenora through all the abuse as you, you came to see it as I think you write an act of defiance how does how does that those tie together well you, you, you know you, you see so much uh, despair you, you see so much because of what happened at the residential schools and people are just starting to to realize that now and you know we're we're growing up we've seen some of our uncles that that, that went through some horrific times and and i always wondered what uh, what happened to them what what made them like this and and once you found out and then you say that's that's not going to happen to me so when i when i went to kenora that was i guess that was a, the first real test to to am, am i going to be uh intimidated am i going to be pushed and am i going to be uh um don't like it so much. I'm gonna quit and go home. Uh, no, I, I took the, I took the upper upper place area. I said I'm gonna fight for what I what I who I am as a, as a man and as a as a Nishnabe man and in my rightful place. So I, I stuck it out in spite of of not liking it, just to prove that we could. And, and yeah, for those that haven't read the book, um, yeah, I mean you you went through a lot of outright. I mean probably for I guess the first time in your life, really, you thought it was gonna be one way, but it was another. And even your own team were. Like physically, uh, you know, it wasn't just the stuff in the in the crowd. Um, uh, it was uh, it, your your own teammate was almost, or teammates were attacking you right in training camp. 
Yeah, that was that was probably the. the I, I've never fought in hockey in my my whole, whole life growing there. But I'm from a boxing family. My older brother Terry was a he turned professional for a little while. He won Golden Gloves, and my my cousins in the city were uh, were the were the well known Nolan brothers fighting in Sault Ste. Marie, and they they made the Olympic team that got uh, that got canceled. And so there, uh, so we're always known as a, as a boxing family. So, but I never never once fought in hockey. And then I went to Kenora. It was just uh, you know, somebody would uh, spare you in the back of the leg when you're standing in line to do a drill and say, what, what are you doing here? You stinking wahoo. And I'm going, I turn around, what are you talking about? And I, I speared him back. Right. And all of a sudden, yeah. you, you start fighting right there. And I'm going, what's... Then all of a sudden, next shift, somebody else try in. So this, that happened for, for a little while. And then you started getting, well, what's, what's going on? Why, why, why are people doing that? Then I went to school and the same thing happened there. And so it just came from everywhere. And so one of the first... Uh, First thoughts that came in your brain said, "I'm I got to get out of here," yeah. but uh, but uh, but then again, that stubborn bone inside me that said, "You know, I'm, I'm going to stick it out and, and prove that we could play." And and, and you did obviously uh, make it to the NHL, but I I, I did that part about the school too did strike me because you you got jumped at school and then you leave school and everyone's like, "Oh, probably thinking, you know, well, why did why do people leave school? Why would someone drop out?" And then you kind of read about what you're going through and and. You're, why would you want to stay in school? <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, with what's going on. And then later in the book, you mentioned you're at a dinner table with a friend and uh, they say to their kid, uh, well, um, you know, if you don't do your homework, you won't go to university and you go home and you tell Sandra, well, that's how they do it. You know, so I, I thought that was really interesting. But what I do want to ask you is, you know, you obviously face a lot of overt um racism and and physical violence and so on in 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 Kenora uh but I, I it made me think of something I read in Fred Saskamu's book which came out a few years ago and it's called Call Me Indian I don't know if you read it but uh I just wanted to read something to you and it's a bit a little more about the subtle things that make you question uh your place as opposed to getting you know called something outright so it's he says basically at the he was in Chicago and it, there was an end of season road trip. Bill Gadsby, Bill Mosienko, Jim McFadden, and Lee Fogelin were going to go to L.A. and they said, "Hey, chief, uh, you want to join us?" So they they basically they go on this giant road trip and then um, he he mentions, "Okay, perhaps I was tired from all our evenings out, but I don't remember anything about the drive up the coast until we hit the redwood forests of Northern California, Oregon, and Washington State." And he goes on to say, basically, um, once we hit Seattle, we started east. We went to Bismarck, North Dakota. Lee Fogelin told me they were going to drive me straight from there to Winnipeg to drop off Bill Mosienko. And they didn't want to make the detour to Moose Jaw, where he lived. He said, you're not taking me home. And Lee said, it's, it's too far. And so what Fred says is, I didn't know what to make of that. I thought the trip had gone well. Was it just their eager, eagerness to get home? Or had I misjudged their friendship or acceptance? And I wanted to ask you about kind of how that doubt is, you know, some people might just say, oh, okay, that's, you know, they could have just needed to get home. But that idea of being equal, you know, to your, to your teammates or to people around you when you're kind of out of your element and you're hanging out with people outside of your culture. Did you, I mean, how many times did doubts like that happen and how, do they still happen? Yeah, yeah not, so, not so much. I, I think because uh, we grew up with such a, a big antenna on top of our head to say, you know, beware. And, and my brothers always told me every, every time you go somewhere, make sure you, you know, especially when there's uh, drinking involved, 
make sure you always get your back against the wall. Make sure you, you, you look at the, the quickest, quickest escape out of the building. To, to make sure you know the escape route, and uh, and when you when you talk to people, you can really sense of their uh, if they if they like you or if they're just blowing smoke up your rear. And and so uh, I had a real good defense mechanism built into me at, a, at an early age. And like even some of the some of the interviews that I that I went to afterwards, I could just tell it was it was more so just a token interview. It wasn't really they never really asked me any in depth questions. Just kind of. Okay, we we asked them a couple questions, and so they could say they they interviewed me. That was that was about it. So, I I had my antenna up, but uh, thank God I I had to, I had some really true friends that uh, that wouldn't steer me wrong, and um, and to this day I'm still friends with with some of the players that I played with more so in the in the minors than than in the in the NHL. Now I think Ted, you're right that you loved coaching more than you loved playing. Uh, how how much of that owes to just the degree of control and, and maybe the fact that, you know, I don't, not to put words in your mouth, but maybe the fact that coaching was the first time you really got it at, at, as a professional? You know, I, I think coaching was one of those uh, um, issues that when I, when I played, uh, but thank God I, I met Ted Lindsay at the, at the right time. He was the general manager of Detroit Red Wings when I got drafted, and I went to a training camp. And I was uh, I was really intimidated because the, the guys were so big. And at the time, I didn't really know off ice conditioning very well. I I just played baseball in the in the summertime and went to hockey, but I never I didn't never did any kind of conditioning. So I I didn't have the big legs and my arms weren't very strong. And so I went to uh, my first training camp in Detroit, and I tell you what, I was I was intimidated, and uh, and um, and I I left. I left training camp, but thank God, you know, Ted, uh, Ted called me back and, and, um, and, and saved my, my career. But as you, as you go through, you just kind of learn as you go. And speaking of Ted Lindsay, who the NHL has now has an award named after, uh, I mean, you might not have known it at the time as a 20 year old right out of the Ontario junior league, but how, how uh, interested were you when you learned about, you know, his history and how he fought to get a players association going and, and get a, you know, better treatment for the players? Yeah, you know what, when you're just referring back to your other question about who, who do you trust, but you can just tell when you, when you meet people or uh, I, I could usually um, I could usually tell if they're sincere or not. When I when I first met Ted Lindsay, I could tell this he was a very sincere man. He cared about his about his athletes, and and that's what I uh, from meeting him. And when I got into my coaching part, uh, that's what I really wanted to, you know, whether a guy could skate a little bit faster than somebody else or shoot pocket a little bit harder than somebody else. It, it really doesn't matter. But what matters is how you how you treat those people, and and that's what I really wanted to uh, to. To pass along when I coach, but uh, you, you learn it from people like Ted Lindsay. Your 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 big uh, break coaching, um, and obviously you you know you you started out your NHL career with with Detroit and later Pittsburgh. Uh, but um, in terms of coaching, you, you joined the Sioux, and um, during that time, one of the you know we talked about this on our last podcast uh, with Doug McLean and Scott Morrison. The you know the Eric Lindros saga happens, and you're right in the middle of it because he doesn't want to play for the Sioux team you're coaching. And you go and meet him. Uh, I think it's Bonnie and Carl, if I'm not mistaken, are his parents' uh, names. And I, I thought it was really interesting what you wrote about in that in that portion. You said you went there 
uh, to Eric's house. You, you wanted to get your piece in to kind of convince him to come to the Sioux U and I believe Sherry Bass. And, but, um, you know, his parents said no way right away, but you kind of came away with a respect uh, for that. And, and, and why was that them being so protective of their son, something that you kind of noticed and, 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 and took note of? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. I, I remember that meeting. Like it was <clears throat> yesterday. We had uh, we're all in our suits, and Phyllis Bazito was there, and he had his suit on, and our our ownership group, and our and we went and we did. I thought we did a great sales pitch, and all of a sudden he said, "I'm not going," and they were so defiant about not going, and uh, and so I just kind of had a flashback at that moment. I said, "You know, I wish." Um, our people would have had a chance to to say no. We don't want to go to that residential school. No, do we? We we got dragged out of our houses. We got, you know, we basically got kidnapped out of our homes to to be put in these schools. And here I was with a with a young man who's an af- athlete, and he didn't want to go to Sault Ste. Marie. And I'm I'm, and I almost stood up and, and applauded him, um, for for that uh, for that decision because uh, not too many people can, can do that back when I was growing up and, and I was glad that he was able to do it. And, and hopefully going forward, someone who doesn't want to go somewhere has that choice. Yeah, probably it, it did set a standard, but yeah, that was an interesting, you know, cultural tie that I don't think a lot of people would have thought of and, and would only get out of, you know, you being there and sharing that in this book. Yeah. And as a, I guess a long time OHL watcher, I was just struck by how many players from that, from your generation of uh, with the Greyhounds, you know, that you, became coaches themselves what was it you know about the culture that sort of helped that uh coaching tree grow yeah you know uh, Nate but one of the things that I I, I never went to a coaching clinic uh, I never I, I just called people that I, I played with who I respected and got their opinions and I read some books about drills and and talked to some some people but the the biggest uh, biggest advice I got from for coaching was my upbringing and how we were all accepted. We weren't put on a pedestal, and we weren't uh, you, you're you're this or you that. And, and I and I mentioned it in in a book that I thought I was the the special one of our whole group. There was twelve of us, and I, I was uh, I was the one they loved the most. But uh, I heard my brother say, I heard my sister say, we so we all felt it. And that's the the type of coach that I wanted to do. I I didn't want to be a, a coach that just uh, got along with the really good players and played them a lot and they, they like you more. No, you you have to treat everyone equal. So that's what we we did in, in Sault Ste. Marie, and, uh, and I really wanted to talk to the kids about uh, schooling because when I went to Kenora, uh, I stopped going to school and and no one seemed to care. And no one no one ever asked me and said Ted are you in class uh, so we uh, along with Sherry Bass we came up with a with a great rule in, in junior hockey that if uh, if one of our players missed school uh, purposely who just didn't want to go uh, we would wake up the following morning at 5 a.m and have a have a we call it stupid practice for somebody <laughs> stupid for not going to school and so the first year I think we did it three or four times in the last uh, four years we did it zero and now I look back at that group of uh, kids we had. I tell you, we got doctors, we have uh, uh, investors, we have therapists, we have police officers, firemen. And I tell you, we have really good people. And, and a number of them went into coaching. And Rick Kowalski is one of our, 
uh, a 17th round, 18th round pick or whatever he was. And he just worked so hard in order to get there. And all of a sudden, he ended up coaching in the minors for a long time and eventually coaching the NHL. Denny Lambert, another another coach. So you're right, there's a lot of uh, a lot of guys that, that coach from that team. Bobby Bugner. So it was a, it was a good group. I should just quickly throw in, I used to work in uh, Rick Kowalski's hometown, Simcoe, Ontario, where his dad was actually the mayor. So <laughs> leadership just, I guess, ran in the family. Oh, yeah. Rick, I tell you, he was, uh, uh, I shouldn't say it's on there too much, but he, he was one of my, my favorites for for sure. He was just, uh, he he really cared. I mean, he uh, we had Chris Simon at the time, and Chris was going through some some personal issues. And, and as another 17 or 18, 19-year-old kid who could take Chris under his wing, and they went to the movies and uh, got him uh, thinking about something else and versus going out with, with, uh, with some of his uh, friends at Liam, uh, Took him astray once in a while, so he was a big, uh, big contributions to to Chris's uh, uh, early career. Yeah, you actually write about uh, you know Chris and, and Denny Lambert and Chris, the, the the part with Chris is really interesting because uh, you, you wonder where his career or how would it, you know I, I I actually had forgotten how long he ended up playing in the NHL um, and you, you you wonder where his career might have gone had he. Uh, had he not ran into you, right? You traded for him. I believe it was with Ottawa, right? And they were uh, kind of trying to get rid of him. Yeah, and uh, our, our general manager, Sherry Bass, and he kind of, he, he, he understood. Uh, he, he understood people very well. And I'll tell you, he was one of the brightest hockey people I've ever been uh, associated with my, my entire life, both NHL and, and junior hockey. And uh, when he brought up Chris Simon's name and he said, hey, Ted, this relationship, he's an Ojibwe, you're an Ojibwe, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe there's a connection uh, uh, nation to nation with, with you guys. And uh, what do you think? So he brought that up to me and I, th- I thought it was a wonderful idea. And uh, and Chris uh, certainly helped us helped us win the league, and and we should have won the Memorial Cup that year. Yeah, eventually did in uh, third times a charm in 1992-93, and uh, then you know a few years later, I believe it's 1995, you you make uh, the jump uh, to the head uh, to head coach uh, uh, in the NHL, um, and that's with Buffalo. And I, I you know I, I thought long and hard about how to ask you about Buffalo because I mean the chapter speaks for itself. There's a lot going on there. The success on the ice, your players, coach. The, there's players that love you, um, and there's some friction uh, with John Muckler. I mean I know myself and Nate who were watching hockey a lot back then. Remember hearing about it on the hot stove every Saturday and what's going on with between Ted Noll and John Muckler. And obviously there's there's also you know the star goalie Dominic Kashuk had some some issues uh uh with you i guess whether you knew it at the time or not so uh that's a long way of getting to um first of all we want to talk about the success because there was success there uh, i talked to brad may today and he was he was talking about why a little bit about why that is and how you're able to just tap into to the players but in terms of what went wrong how much of that was culture you know i go back to reading the book and your mom kind of mentioning to you, you know, don't trust the Joganosh, if that's the way I'm saying it right. And then you kind of, you come into this professional power structure, right? It's an establishment. And you seem like the type of person that you're not going to really back down, you know, whereas others may just let a, a few things slide every now and then. Like how much of it was that you being in a, in a, in a power structure and you not maybe, maybe uh, wanting to play ball within that power structure? Yeah, you know that, that's a 
that's a good way to to put it. I I I wouldn't quite say it was a like a power for on my side, anyways. It wasn't so much a a power thing. It was just a, the right thing. And I've always uh, I always grew up with uh, with making the the right right choices for the for the right reasons and and don't compromise something to to get something else. You you have to do what's right and and the only thing only thing I had issues with is sometimes I had to play players who are a higher draft choice uh, than a player who maybe wasn't so high or maybe a walk-on player that uh, uh, I felt was, you know, Denny, Denny Lambert, for example. I mean, here's a guy that, that walked onto the National Hockey League. He never got drafted, yet he played 500 games. How would that happen if someone didn't give him that opportunity? So so I, 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 really, I really admired the, the work ethic in, in athletes. Uh, more so than than their ability, uh, I, I love their demeanor so much than their uh, anything else because that that's what wins uh, championships. You, you might win a few games by by doing it, but you don't win championships. So, I I, I had a very hard time of uh, of playing something because of their their draft position. Right, and, and, and so you know, a lot of times, and just for background for those listening, you know, the general manager is John Muckler, and you're meeting with him at times, and he's asking, you know, why aren't you playing Trefilov and Net, uh, and and others like you mentioned, maybe some of the Czech guys they brought in were higher draft picks, and you kind of want to go with your guys, so you kind of stuck to your guns, right? Because a, a lot of people wonder, well, Ted Nolan's had the success, why isn't it been able to stick? And I mean, you know, beyond cultural reasons i'm just wondering yeah you probably touched on it you're you know you're you're gonna stick to what you think is right you think that kind of went against you at times oh no no question i mean and that's what uh we'll we'll, we'll probably speak about this a little bit later on like that's what happened to to me in buffalo and that's where i i physically was sick because you're trying to lose hockey games in order to get a draft position that that uh that was even uh you shouldn't even have took the job to begin with if that's what you you knew you're jumping into. But to get back to to this uh, Pacific thing, yes, I just didn't I just didn't feel like compromising somebody's somebody else's ability. Uh, you know, the star players are going to make their their money. They're going to make their their stardom. But the the average Joe Blow is you know he might get 100 games, he might get 10 games, he might get 300 games in the NHL. But I tell you, his his work and if he's working for it, he deserves it. So that's that was just my my personal thing that I strongly believed in because my I, I grew up with a, a a father. We we didn't have much growing up, and and he always told me to to uh, because we're poor, you don't have to look poor. Uh, because we don't have the best doesn't mean you had you can't be your best. So I just took that whole philosophy in my entire life, and here I was in the in the best league in the world. Then all of a sudden you you're asked to compromise it that a little bit, and I just uh, I, I couldn't do it. And yeah, just just going through that first time in Buffalo, you're talking about just uh, in your answer, you're talking about your second time through Buffalo, which we can we'll get into. But yes, this is this first time through Buffalo, 1995 to 1997. You and I, I think after your second season, you go to the second round, uh, great series versus Ottawa, and this team's on the rise, and you win the you know you win the Jack Adams uh, tr- trophy for Coach of the Year, Jack Adams Award, and it, this is how the book starts. It arrives at your house, but you're already you're out because you got a, a contract offer that was insulting um, and you kick the trophy down the stairs later in the book. You, you kind of take the Jack Adams, a little replica trophy. Uh, and you, and you uh, did you, I, my question is, did you ever put it back together? 
Uh, no, no, it's it's still in still in the basement. And like I said, you know, when 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 people read it, they'll they'll say, "Geez, what a." Uh, it's it had nothing to do with sour grapes. It was just, you know, when you're in a in a mental state at that point at point of your life, you, you you wish you would have done something differently. But at the point, I was just so so angry that uh, you know something that I, I felt I was really good at. Then uh, all of a sudden, the the word that you said uh, earlier, mom, my mom said, "Don't don't you ever trust those juggernauts." Which means the white people, and I'm going. We could we could trust them, and and uh, I said no no don't ever trust them. And anyways, uh, it it worked right up until that point. I I, I trusted some people, and then all of a sudden, uh, here's something that I was very good at, and 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 they took it away. And I'm going. How could how could they take something away that when you prove that you're you're good at it, but uh, they they managed to do it somehow. And it's uh, it's interesting, yeah, because I wondered is it still it's still in, in pieces or, or at least I think the, the, the base has come off the top. So yeah, that, that's actually very telling. You still have it there, but never repaired it. Um, okay. Uh, before I let Nate jump in, I, uh, I just, that first stint with Buffalo, because there's a lot to talk about. Um, when you watched, you, you know, the 1999 Stanley cup final and you saw that controversial puck go past Dominic Hasek, what were your thoughts uh, you know, <laughs> I had uh, two two thoughts. Good that uh, that happened, and all of a sudden you go shoot. Then you then you have the rest of the guys on the on the team, and and in the city of Buffalo, and how much they, how much they deserve a championship. So that was that was a a tough one to to watch. But then then again, I mean, I I think it was a goal. I don't think it was kicked in. <laughs> True, but I mean, yeah, because because I mean, there there is the Dominic Kashuk issue, right? I mean, he. I mean, in the end of the day, you know, the, the whole, you know, situation where with the injury and the playoffs and, and, and was he hurt or wasn't he? I mean, what, what do you think it was? Was, it, was he just ended up being John Muckler's guy? Like, why do you think he didn't want to play? You, you know, to, to this day, uh, you know, Brad and, uh, and Rob Ray, and uh, they would know better because they, they ran into the locker room when he, when he left, uh, left the game in Ottawa and they, they confronted him. But, uh, you know, to, to this day, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not 100% sure because we, we tried to, writing the book, we tried to get him to uh, explain uh, his side of the story. Uh, I, I, I've never, I never thought there was any issues between us. And but obviously there there was and tried to get him to to talk about it. Uh, uh, he he still refused too. So I'm not 100 percent sure why why he did what he did and why he didn't like uh, playing for me. He never really came out and, and said. Yeah, I mean, I, I tried to rack my brain about it, and I thought maybe the only thing I could think of was maybe because you know you you seem to gravitate towards. Uh, you know, I guess maybe he's a star, right? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe he thought he, he, I don't know. That's one of the things that kind of crossed my mind. But um, before I let Nate go, I, I mean, there's a lot of great parts about your time, both times in Buffalo. Uh, I know you talked about the tanking later, but you know, it was so, it was so interesting to me about like, uh, I think it's Gene Knox, how you're welcome to Buffalo. And I learned about the white Buffalo, why the Buffalo is white on the crest. And I thought all of that was so amazing. Like, I mean, uh, do you feel like you you got a shot there because obviously because you're you know doing great things uh, coaching in Sault Ste. Marie and beyond and then going to Hartford but uh, Jean Knox you know her 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 affinity towards uh, First Nations culture. 
I, I, I really believe, you know, the, the Knox family certainly had a had an impact on on me coming there somehow. I'm not 100% sure how, but uh, but just by the the welcoming that I got in in Buffalo when I when when I signed the contract, they had a big uh, celebration at the University of Buffalo and all the uh, uh, the Senecas and all the the, um, the the local Native American groups got together and they, they welcomed me into the city. We had a ceremony. It was it, and Gene Knox was a big part of that. And I tell you, it was a, it was a special. And I I thought I I had I finally found home away from home. And it was a such a such a, a breath of fresh air going into a, a blue collared town with the with a Native American touch to it. And, and and the white buffalo on the crest too, like, and you you talk about the spirituality, and I, I mean, I might be wrong on this because I don't remember exactly, but the teachings of the, I think it might have been the seven grandfathers. Could you just go into that about about the white buffalo and and, and that? Yeah, there's there's just you know legends and prophecies about uh, uh, things will start um, uh, uh, getting better once we, once the buffalo the white buffalo comes back. And all of a sudden, there was a sighting of the white buffalo within the. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not a, a, a true historian, but uh, right. you know, I, I just hear stories from from uh, family and growing up. But uh, the the legend of of the white buffalo is really well known in in our communities right across Turtle Island. So, uh, mm-hmm. coaching a, a team with a, with a white, white buffalo on the top, I'm going. Uh, <laughs> who could ever predict that? Amazing. Yeah. And Ted, in, in between the, the Sabres years, the first time around, and when you finally got that right coaching opportunity with the Moncton Wildcats, what did you learn about where and why you know racism exists in the hockey world? Yeah, you know what? Uh, the, the one thing I have always grown up with, uh, with is, uh, you know, hockey is something that I, that I did. It wasn't who I was. It just uh, I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed playing and uh, maybe that's where part of the book people thought I was lazy. I wasn't lazy. I just, I couldn't wait to get home. I, I didn't want to, uh, go golfing with the guys at the end of the season. I just couldn't wait to go home. So anyways, then they had the, uh, presumption that I, that I, that I was lazy. I didn't want to, but anyways, I just, um, I, I'm sorry. The, the, the question was, well, I, I guess it was just, you, you write about your experiences, you know, traveling up to Nunavut and, and then, of course, I guess when you got in the Quebec League, and there was just some you know, terrible behavior from fans. Just what? And you were sort of, and you're also working through, you know, why didn't you know the phone ring more after winning Coach of the Year in the NHL? Just sort of, what did you sort of, I guess, learn about, you know, just how there is some some pre- prejudice that you know that hockey sort of got got to you know address better, and maybe is finally starting to address now. Well, you, you know what? It's just one of those things where you know I, I finally after after Buffalo, it, it kind of really hit me really hard for for a few years, and and uh, because uh, as I, I said earlier, you know, hockey is what I did. It wasn't who I am, and I then all of a sudden it, it became who I was, and all of a sudden I, I took it so so hard, and uh, and then it took me a long time. I went through sweat lodges, and I talked to some uh, mental health people, and and I finally got it out of my system, and and I was finally. Uh, content of what uh, what I was doing now as I was working as a national native role model program going into first nation communities talking to kids about substance abuses and we started a um, a found I started a foundation called the Ted Nolan Foundation and and my mother was very uh, instrumental in my life and she talked about the importance of education so we started up a uh, 
education uh, uh, adversary for First Nation women right across Canada. We, we raised close to two to three million dollars, giving out. Uh, so I, I just loved it, and I finally got hockey out of my system. Then all of a sudden, one uh, one night, I get a call from uh, Robert Irving from the Moncton Wildcats, and uh, asked if I'd be interested in, in in talking to him. And I told, I remember telling my wife, I said, "There's not a chance of going to Moncton." Uh, but when I got there, uh, it, it flipped completely over because that was the first time in all of my, my playing and coaching days, this is the first time ever in my, my entire life that I felt wanted. I really felt uh, uh, he wanted me to be a part of his organization, and I, I couldn't wait to, to go. And, and to, to this day, it was probably one of the best hockey experiences I've ever had. Yeah, and what to you seemed struck you as really unique about coaching in, in the in the Quebec League. I always feel like it's because it's, you know, you've got players from the Maritimes, the States, Ontario, Quebec, obviously, the Europe, that it's it's like almost sometimes seems like the ultimate, you know, just melting pot type of league where you've got all these different, you know, hockey backgrounds coming together. Yeah, you know, it, I, I tell you the truth, uh, Nate, I, I was scared when I, when I finally accepted about going to Moncton and, uh, and you, you always have that self-doubt. You said, geez, can I still coach? Because I haven't coached in almost nine to ten years previous to that. Uh, I ran some hockey practices with my, with my sons, and that was about it. But I was, I was afraid to go in, and all of a sudden, the, the language barrier, uh, the style of play in the Quebec Major Junior League compared to the Ontario League or, or the Western Hockey League, there are three u- unique, distinct uh, leagues. Uh, so going into there was kind of a... Uh, I was afraid, but once I got there, then all of a sudden uh, you meet a young uh, young player like Brad Marchant, and then uh, you get uh, we go and recruit Keith Yandel from uh, from the United States. Then we traded for another guy, Philip Dupuy, who is a big star in the Quebec League, uh, who's a who's a true Quebecer. And all of a sudden you have a, a maritime, you have a Quebecer, you have you American. Then I, I brought a First Nation guy in, so it was a, it sure was a melting pot, and and to to win the uh, the championship for for Robert was uh, was definitely a highlight with with all the players I had. Mm-hmm. Now, with respect to being a hockey dad and having you know sons who played in the OHL, I think you note that you had hoped the Ontario and Quebec leagues that they would have outlawed fighting by the time you know Brandon and Jordan were old enough to play. I, I sort of that sort of struck me too because now the Quebec League has taken that step this year. The OHL has limits on how often a player can fight. I guess uh, from your point of view as a former player, as a father, as a coach, when people sort of, you know, complain about that, how, how, what's the best way to sort of respond, you know, sort of, I guess, re- reason reason with them and say this is sort of the way the, the sport's got to go now? It, you know, if you look at uh, one of the young young kids from the Quebec League, he just uh, had to retire because of concussions. I mean, it's uh, can you imagine getting punched in the head and uh, geez I mean it's 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 a vicious uh, vicious thing and I just really don't get me wrong I, I love uh, aggressive hockey I love contact hockey I, I love hard-working hockey but you can't get the two mixed up if you're competing and you're battling and uh, and fighting for no reason is uh, and then it introduced into our game uh, through it somewhere along the line all of a sudden one people wanted to get one team wanted to get a bigger, tougher guy than the other team wanted to get a tougher guy, and it just got out of control. And I, like I said, I, I don't mind the, the natural part of, of uh, uh, when you have to combat with with people, but to go out to start a fight for for no apparent reason, I, I think it should be banned for sure. Yeah, and of course that player uh, Lane Hinkley, uh, his name, nineteen year old with the Charlottetown Islanders, basically told you, you 
he can't play play anymore. Play, of course, he was playing, let's say, Charlottetown and uh, Jim Holton, the coach who used to be in uh, Kingston, Neil and I's hometown, small world. <laughs> I, now, uh, what, what can you also just tell us about your coaching with uh, the Whip Wemekong women's hockey team and, and just what you've learned from that? Uh, I tell you, that was, that was uh, uh, you know, the, the games, actually, we, we did pretty well. We, we played a team from Saskatchewan, and they, uh, I, I, I forget the young ladies' names now, but they had four Olympians on their, on their team that had Métis and uh, First Nation descent. And I tell you, they were a good team, and, and we lost to them 4-2. But the, the one thing my wife and I always talk about, we had a, a uh, kind of like a little banquet the night before the, uh, the event uh, happened, and all the all the girls got up to to introduce themselves and where they're from and and their and their nation and what have you and and they they got into their uh, the, what they're doing you know a lot of them were in third year uh, medical school third year law school they're they're all in in universities getting their uh, high degrees so you know, I was just so so impressed uh, with, with that part more so than than the hockey part. Hmm. True. True. And I also wanted to know too what's what's been the most eye-opening you know aspect of the work you're doing as an advisor for the Chiefs of Ontario. Uh, you know where we are still to to this day. Uh, you know with with the water issues in some of our communities, the lack of housing. Uh, I mean, some of our some of our, our communities are are a little bit remote in, but the the acceptance of the kids leaving into uh, certain parts of of uh, you know when you leave home uh, to go, I, I don't care if you're if you're from downtown Toronto or if you have to go to Sudbury. I mean, it's still a transition to to leave. But when you had racism on top of it, when you had name calling and, and you don't fit in, uh, it's it's really hard for our kids to to adapt and to to adjust. So I just think uh, this day of age, where it should be a little bit more welcoming, a little bit more understanding, but to get to, with with the food and, and the jobs and, and what have you. So we, we got a lot of work to do and, uh, and our chiefs, I'm, I'm quite sure that they're working at it, but uh, we got to work a little bit harder. And just a reminder, our, our audience, I think there, as a last update, there were still 28 oil water advisories that, are, that haven't been lifted yet. And I mean, it's 80% fewer than it was eight years ago, but it's still, you know, 28 too, too many. Now, you mentioned playing baseball growing up. That jogged, actually jogged my memory of seeing a uh, well-known ball player from uh, Garden River. What should, what should people know about Darren Zach? He's a, he was a couple of years behind you growing up. I uh, know Darren was our pitcher, and we, uh, you know, uh, maybe the people from Sault Ste. Marie will disagree with him, but I think we, we closed down the city uh, fastball league. Because we are, uh, when we when we joined the league, you know, we we lost games, uh, say eleven ten, uh, ten eleven. You know, we lost eight seven. You know, we we always hit the ball, but we had no pitcher to really stop the other team. And all of a sudden, Darren uh, learned how to pitch, and all of a sudden, we were going. I think we went two or three years, uh, thirty three and 0, 43 and 0. We just we we just we just couldn't lose anymore because uh, we could always hit. But we never had no pitcher. So once Darren learned how to pitch, I mean, and he was wild at the beginning. Uh, and the batters are in, in the box, and he was throwing that thing geez, close to 100 miles an hour. And, and the pitching mound is so much show, sh- shorter than, than fastball. Yeah, and, 46 uh, could, feet, yeah. Yeah, you could just tell the uh, batters were in there shaking their boots a little bit. But uh, I tell you, he was uh, – and he, he made, the, um, made the Baseball Hall of Fame. 
and uh, and he's he's a, he's my cousin back home. But uh, okay. our, our 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 team consisted of his dad, his his uncle, my brother, my brother, my brother, my two cousins, and three friends. That was it. That was our, our team. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually saw him pitch. I guess he would have been in his mid thirties at the time for the Toronto Gators. I'll play a, a game in uh, Napanee because uh, a little town near Kingston, halfway between Kingston and Belleville, is a big uh, fastball hotbed. And also uh, something else that my mom would be on me if she reads, because she's going to read the book eventually. She would be on me if I didn't ask ask of this of you, because it's a movie that she introduced me to. What did, what did the first Billy Jack movie uh, mean to your, mean to you when you saw it when you were 13 or 14? Oh, I tell you, uh, I never walked out of a movie theater with my hand held up so high. I mean, that, that's uh, Billy Jack was to me he was my 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 childhood hero even though he was a fictional character uh i tell you then then you watch you know, billy mills story but uh, billy jack was certainly uh actually i just bought a billy jack hat not too long ago because uh, <laughs> i'm not too sure if you're you're aware but i came down with uh, multiple myeloma uh, oh. probably about six months ago and they had to get uh in the last chemo that i took wiped out all my took out all my hair so my my grandson papa that's all you need is a hat so, so I went on and bought, a, bought myself a Billy Jack hat. I didn't nice. know that. How how is that going? How are you? How are you feeling these days? And you know, uh, knock on wood, I'm, I'm feeling a lot, a uh, lot stronger. I tell you that uh, uh, they're my new heroes. You know, we talk about sport people going being your heroes, but uh, people go through this horrible, horrible disease. Uh, 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 they're special fighters in the in the. And the people who, and the doctors and the nurses and people who work in this field, boy, uh, they're, they're my new heroes. And uh, so I had multiple, I had to go through four and a half months of, of chemo. And then the last uh, chemo that I took after my stem cell uh, replacement uh, surgery, uh, they give you the mother load of, of, uh, of chemo, which wipes out your whole immune system and uh, wiped out all your hair. So uh, it's been over a month and a half two months now and i'm I'm just starting to feel back to, almost back to normal knock on wood oh great okay and i, I mean are, I, I, yeah i did not know that uh sorry nate were you about to say something no no although although i i was just saying you referenced uh billy mills i do remember the the biopic of him uh with uh one of graham green's first acting roles actually is a supporting supporting role billy mills of course the 10th one of the ten thousand meters 1964 tokyo olympics Great, great movie. I remember my parents showing me. <laughs> um, you know what? So, so we'll 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 we're close to wrapping it up. Um, but one, a couple of things, Ted. And first of all, we wish you, you know, nothing but luck and health and and, and you know continued uh, strength through all of this. As I said, I don't think I don't know about you, Nate. I did know not know that. Um, so. Um, I, I guess a couple of things, you know, since this is, you know, obviously about sports books and we've covered a lot of the narrative, I know we, uh, I don't want to gloss over the rest of you. I mean, we only focused on 95 to 97 with the Sabres. So uh, I'm trying to find a way to sum up, uh, I guess, uh, you know, the rest. And there's a lot there. We did, we did cover Moncton and the Sioux, but I mean, you talked about the second stint with the Islanders and, and the idea of tanking and how it affected you. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, the Islanders. I mean, you, you, uh, any Leaf fan will remember that 2007 season. And I, I hope I'm not screwing this up, but I'm pretty sure you guys made the playoffs on the last day of the season with Wade Dublowitz. Is that, am I, am I, do I have that right, uh, Ted? We, yeah, we, we lost our, our, our big number one, Ricky DiPietro, and uh, the injuries. And uh, uh, Dublowitz had to come in and 
and we, and we won it in a shootout, I believe. Yes. And uh, and he came out with that uh, famous poke check at the at the last one to to win it. So yeah. I tell you, that was that was a that was a lot a lot a lot of fun. And and uh, talking about that year, probably the the one thing I'll remember of all my hockey. Uh, uh, whether it's coaching Latvia in the Olympics or coaching mm-hmm. Buffalo for the first time or winning the Memorial Cup, but standing behind the bench with Al Arbor uh, mm-hmm. in that uh, game, we brought him back to so he yep. could participate in his 1500th game and, and win his 900 and something game. I tell you, that was that was special. I never met a, a nicer man in my, my entire life, and uh, just to to be part of that uh, special evening was was special. Yeah, and 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 it, it, it's interesting too because uh, yeah, I I thought that was a, a cool little touch in the book how you how you, you kind of noticed that I think you walked by the wall and you saw you had fourteen ninety nine games coach. You said, "Why don't we bring them back?" Um, uh, so it was your idea. Yeah, yeah, like I said, you know, there, there's just you always one thing I have to give Charles uh, Wong a lot of credit the, the former owner of the Islanders who 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 passed away, but after one thing I have to give him credit for, he always asked people for their advice and how to how to get more people in the buildings and what can we do and 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 I, and I told him I said when I was walking by the locker room I said Charles we could have a game Sunday morning at six o'clock in the morning I said we could sell out this game no question so <laughs> he, he looked at me and said what's your idea and I, I mentioned we said we bring back Al I mean, so so we brought brought him back, and I tell you, and standing behind the bench with him, and all the games that he that he went through, and he and he stood there, and he says, "Ted, I'm a little nervous." <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're nervous. Yeah. I'm nervous even just standing. But I tell you, what, what a true gentleman, and and you can understand why the why the Islanders won. Uh, it's not because you know they obviously had some good uh, good players, but uh, you also have to have a good coach. Um, okay. Before we wrap, I just want to say, I mean, the ultimate goal in hockey is to win the Stanley Cup, and Jordan wins the Stanley Cup in 2012. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong if he was on the 2014 team, but I know he was on the 2012 Kings. And what, what kind of, um, I mean, just you look back on your brother, you know, being a, a you know a Habs fan, and 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 a, you talked about when you went to uh, the Forum, going there early for the last Sabers game in the old Forum, and noticing all the banners, uh, jerseys. So when your son is a part of that, uh, winning that cup, I mean, you must have thought back on on just growing up and 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 the allure of hockey. I'm imagining, and 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 one day you're accessing that in a generation, right? No, I mean, the, uh, it was kind of like a surreal moment. If you if you remember earlier in that chapter, I, w- I was invited to a uh, an event out in Western Canada, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was invited to a sweat lodge. Mm-hmm. And we had a sweat, and uh, right towards the end, the the keeper of the, the sweat lodge said, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a special song for for coach here. We're gonna we're gonna win him the Stanley Cup." And I wasn't working at the time. And I said, "You have to give me a job first. And I said, "No, no, we'll we'll win you a Stanley Cup." And all of a sudden, uh, that that year, Jordan was called up to the uh, LA Kings, and he was part of the, the Stanley Cup uh, winning team, and he was part of the 2014. Also, and he was also part of the St. Louis Blues. So he has three uh, three Stanley Cup rings at home. But uh, wow. I tell you, to, to, and my my father's name was Stanley, and to to bring the Stanley Cup back to to Garden and and to bring it on that our famous bridge. This is Indian yes. land. Mm-hmm. I tell you. Uh, then we brought it to uh, a powwow. We had a powwow ceremony, and and some of the friends that I grew up and I, I never seen them too emotional before but geez some of them had tears in their eyes and i tell you it's one of those special special moments that i'll, I'll never forget 
Ted, this is a, this is my thank you for that. And this is a final two-part question before we let you go. And we thank you for giving us this much time and for writing this book, which both myself and Nate found so interesting um, and learned so much from. Um, I don't know which part of this to ask first, but I think I'll, I'll ask the last question first, or last part of the question first, which is, um, you know, you say we have to work harder. That's how the book ends. Um, but before I find out ways in which First Nations communities have to work harder, I want to know what are things that everybody else can do better uh, when it comes to reconciliation, especially through hockey and, and specifically the NHL? I mean, what, what, what can we do better and what can the NHL do better to kind of aid and, and move reconciliation forward? You know, the, the, the big, big thing is, is knowledge, just understanding where, where people are from. And, you know, even, even when I was growing up, uh, do, you, do you still live in teepees? I mean, give me a break. I mean, it, I, I didn't uh, grow up in the 1800s. You know, we're, we're, we're still here, but there's just so much unknown. There's, there's nothing taught at, at schools about who we are as, as, a, as a people. And you know, I think that if they start putting more into the curriculum and, and understanding where, where people are from, they would have a better understanding and better uh, better empathy to, to people who went through some of the things that our, our forefathers went through. And, and as, you, as you look in a book, my, my first game in Chicago Stadium, I yeah. dropped some tobacco outside of the, the arena. It wasn't. It wasn't to, to celebrate my uh, my accomplishment of playing my first game. It was to recognize all the all the people before me who who went through some horrific horrific parts of their life in, in residential school. So I, I think education is is part of it. And if the earlier we can get it to the to the kids, the, the better off we're going to be. You know, teaching an old dog new tricks. I'm not too sure, but uh, teaching young. Uh, we can make this world a better place, and and I and I seen a perfect example of it uh, this past summer. My, my my grandson plays baseball, and he misjudged a, a fly, and it hit him right in the head. And with three or four kids ran over to him who were from the city, and asked him if he was okay. Uh, you know, I, I had a quick flashback of that happened to me when I was a kid. They would have said, "Look at that dumb Indian, can't even catch." So things are things are things are getting better. Do, do you think the NHL, the NHL has gone, you know, all over the place to try and include everybody, right? And in, in, in almost chasing its tail in the last probably three years um, or and maybe a little bit beyond. But, I mean, do you think they've kind of, I mean, over overshot and not looked at the fact that, I mean, First Nations culture is Canadian culture, which is really hockey culture. So do you think the NHL has kind of missed the boat on that and maybe not even recognizing that in the way it should? Well, you, you know, uh, if if you if you see someone who looks like you, it, it means so much. I mean, in in our communities, when when uh, uh, you know Ethan Bear plays, you know our 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 our, our, our communities turn turn in. When uh, Young Montour got made it to the semifinals this year against uh, um, uh, the Vegas Golden Knights, I mean, everybody was watching. I mean, so the more the more recognition you, you have, and uh, the, there's a lot of our people who could who could scout. There's a lot of our people who coach. There's a lot of our people who could play, but are are they given the fair opportunity? That's that's uh, the one thing. And when you're when you're born on one side of the, and even with myself, I mean, even though if, uh, I was right in the midst of it, I, I still felt a little bit uh, not not accepted in the mainstream. My last question is, you say we have to work harder, and by we, you mean First Nations people. What do you mean by that when it comes to reconciliation? No, I, I don't mean uh, we as, as First Nation people. I think we as a society. 
uh, okay. have to work on. You know, I, 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 it's it's funny because I, I finally came to the conclusion two years ago because uh, uh, I was working on a national native program, national native role model program for a long time. We do a lot of hockey schools in our communities and, and we talk to the kids about uh, what to expect, how to get ready, what to uh, what to expect when they, when they go try out for, for, for a team. You, you can't keep your head down. You got to look them in the eye. You got to, you got to do certain things or they'll, they're, they're going to think you're lazy. So we always try to prepare our kids and, and where they're going and when they go to school, uh, make sure you're, you're careful. But then it finally dawned on me a couple of years ago, maybe, maybe we're educating the wrong people. Maybe we got to educate the people that the, that our kids are going to that mm-hmm. uh, understand that, uh, that our kids are, are just kids. Uh, Ted, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, uh, thanks very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you.